Hello, I'm Robert Bateman, Analyst and Research Director at GRC World Forums, and I'm joined today by Rich Fenton from Pure Storage. Hello, Rich. Hey, Rob, how are you? Very well, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. First of all, before we start, we're going to talk about uh, ransomware attacks and uh, the, the various steps organizations can take to mitigate the impact of those attacks. Could you tell us first a bit about who you are, Rich, what you do at Pure Storage and maybe a bit about Pure Storage as well, your, your company? Yes, um, my name is Rich Fenton. Um, I'm a modern principal data architect um, working at Pure Storage. I'm based in the UK, but I actually cover the whole of the EMEA region. Um, Pure Storage uh, have been a storage that's really been um, disrupting the infrastructure and specifically the flash storage business, um, predominantly with our structured-based solutions, and then more after in the last few years with our unstructured data solutions, and, and uh, specifically targeting um, how we can help customers co recover from ransomware attacks effectively. Great, thank you, Rich. So before we get into the detail of how data storage relates to ransomware, could you tell us a bit about how big a threat ransomware is to the average organization? Yeah, I think ransomware is, is really a huge threat and it's in, always increasing, it's ever growing, um, much so that it's very much a business nowadays. Um, we look at the almost the, the, the supply chain of how the hackers are using ransomware and almost commercializing ransomware, that's aiding its pr proliferation of attacks and, and the ability to attack. But then you also have a distracted population as well. So, you know, a, a fact, everything that's gone on with the pandemic means a, a shift to remote working. Um, that brings its own challenges as well of how do we protect those end, endpoint devices? Um, are users um, aware of um, phishing attacks? So it's a combination of all of these different variables that are happening within the industry, which means that A, there's more proliferation, there's more attacks, and therefore there's a more successful attacks as well. And, and, and you see this based in the numbers. I, I described it as a business before. The damages from cybercrime this year is expected to be approximately $6 trillion. That's wow. an enormous amount of money. And that's not how much money people are paying out to the ransomware attackers. That's the impact, the commercial impact of of um, having a ransomware attack and the cost of paying the ransom, recovering from the business, or, or businesses being down and unable to trade from that. And that number's increased um, over 100% in the last four years. I think in 2016, it was $3 trillion, the impact of ransomware. Uh, $6 trillion is um, um, scheduled to be this year. And just last week, the Financial Crimes Unit of the U.S. Treasury identified over $5.2 billion in outgoing Bitcoin transactions that was uh, potentially tied to 10 different variants of ransomware. So again, it's big business that the ransomware attackers are being successful. And there's evidence that they're being paid predominantly in Bitcoin and uh, uh, online occurrences, um, to, to, uh, you know, with regards to successful attacks. So... There's a clear demand for this, in quotes, business. It's a business that's growing. And again, we look at the statistics. In Europe, 57% of the companies have, have reported to be affected by ransomware attacks. And in the US, that number rises to 69%. So people are uh, seeing this on, on, a, on a daily basis. Companies are seeing and dealing with this on, the, on a daily basis. That $6 trillion figure there really is astonishing. I mean, that's surely 
not a sustainable situation for the world. I mean, is there any sign that the ransomware epidemic is abating? Could this problem go away or at least uh, reduce anytime soon? No, I think you'll see exactly the opposite. Um, you'll see it accelerate. Um, and, and really, the, I mentioned before, the two facets of that is, is certainly with the, the, the drive to remote working um, introduces challenges. Um, because obviously remote working, people are using their own devices, they're using their own unsecured network. All of those have to be patched and maintained and secured. And it's a real difficult process, you know, not, not just patching your data center, but also patches, patching any remote devices that people are using. That's obviously the, the surface vector of attack. And of course, people are remote, so um, it's much harder for, for us to manage, train and educate, or even just check. I've, I've received a what I think is a dodgy email. What do you think? Checking with the guy next to you, if that's a uh, if that's a potential uh, um, uh, ran your ransomware mm -hmm. attack or phishing attack. So I think there's one side that the remote working is is driving up um, the ability for the for the attackers to gain access. Um, but also, as we you know, certainly in the last eighteen months, we've been a, a distracted population. And what I mean by that is, if I received an email that's been targeted in, to me and has got some credible information, maybe it's the, the school that my daughter works at or, or a COVID outbreak, the last thing I'm going to think about is, is this a, is this a phishing attack? It, I, I might click on that link because my first, my, my first concern is about maybe about my loved ones and a, a potential, you know, local COVID attack or, um, you know, some, something that's happened um, in, in my, in, in my personal life. So the social engineering aspect of the phishing attacks becoming much more personalized, uh, much more targeted means, and, and of course, much more credible, means it's much more easier for, uh, for, for people to, to get that initial hook and, and get access to the systems. And then the flip side to, to that is, is also the commercialization of ransomware. So um, not that I frequent the dark web, um, but a lot of the seminars that I've attended and listened to, um, a lot of the um, white hats and uh, black hats that have, that, that have um, um, moved from ransomware and, and sort of a get a poacher game, turn gamekeeper type roles, talk about ransomware being freely available on, on the dark web and exceedingly um, uh, commercialized. So it's almost a, you know, an Amazon marketplace for people to download their ransomware as a service kits to be able to deliver credible attacks and and, and almost go to the different uh, variants and the different gangs to be able to uh, deliver a ransomware attack and, and, and uh, you know, almost commercialize your own, own business to, 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 to to drive ransomware attacks. So again, there's a huge commercialization, which is proliferating not only the software, uh, but also the ability for relatively inexperienced people to uh, uh, to, 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 to launch attacks and effectively mm -hmm. monetize. Okay, so the commercialization of ransomware, you know, becoming ransomware as a service, that kind of business aspect of, of this threat, clearly pro proliferating. What about the technical means by which ransomware is uh, inflicted are those getting more sophisticated are those changing yeah i think you know even if you look at um phishing attacks you know even a few years ago they, they were almost laughable um spelling mistakes really poor use of fonts really poor use of of images they, they were very easy to spot you know we we laugh and joke about um 
you know, the Ugandan prince that wants to transfer a, a billion dollars into your account and uh, all they need is your account details and your sort code. Um, they, you know, we, we used to see those emails and those phishing attacks, you know, with, with relative fre frequency. Um, but as I said before, the, the targeting is much more credible now. I was talking to one of my colleagues recently who, who received a, a, a targeted attack on, on his home, home personal email. And it was a um, an iTunes um, payment for sixty four dollars, um, and this particular guy was like, "Well, you know, that's that was enough to to raise the warnings as to what what is this." And the only thing wrong with that email was the dispute this purchase claim link. Um, so if you looked at the email headers, if you looked at the the wording, it was absolutely spot on. The malware injection, if you like, or the link, the nefarious link, was the the dispute this claim. And, you know, the credibility of those attacks, um, again, either through social engineering to target an individual or target an individual's background um, to make it more credible, um, makes it much more easier for you to not spot those links and click them. And obviously, that's when you're then exposed to any vulnerabilities that you're running in your localized system to um, to, to give them their, their, their in, if you like, from a, from a ransomware attack perspective. But, but also, we... You know that's that's the traditional method of attack. But when you also look at you know things like the you know SolarWinds um, monitoring um, uh, platform, that was a supply chain attack where the, the individual or the company, the target company, wasn't actually attacked. It was actually a, a supplier um, of that company, a supplier of software in this instance, that was attacked that then left dormant malware within their code, which was then subsequently deployed across multiple organisations. So again. The sophistication of the attack is, is 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 growing. Not only the traditional attacks, the phishing attacks, but also attacking the, the the supply chain as well. And then finally, the other type of sophistication that we see is once the attack has been successful, and they've got their entry point, rather than just uh, encrypting the device that they've attacked or a, a single server or a single service, what the hackers will do is they'll spend many weeks, even months, inside the network looking for vulnerabilities, harvesting credentials, exploiting data, um, so that can be used as part of the ransomware, um, and then launching the attack to cause the maximum amount of damage and disruption. So, you know, harvesting the credentials might be to understand what applications are deployed, how they're being backed up, how they're being serviced. And then if I can get the admin credentials of the underlying infrastructure, then I can start to target the backup systems which may be used in a restore. So once I've launched the attack and there's a um, encryption um, happening and a service disruption happening, um, then if I've deleted the backups or if I've compromised the backups, then you're less likely to be able to restore. And of course, if you're less likely to be able to restore, then you're more likely to pay the, the final ransomware, which is really what they're after at the end of the day anyway. So really evolving in sophistication at sort of each stage of the process then. I myself, even as someone who thinks about this stuff all day, nearly fell for a phishing attack just a couple of days ago. They really are getting more sophisticated. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I would have clicked on it, but for a, a second's hesitation, when I just realized that the domain was probably uh, uh, impersonated. Um, so we're talking about uh, today, advanced storage solutions and their role in mitigating the impact on 
ransomware attacks. You talked a bit about backups there. Um, now, if we assume most listeners are familiar with the basics of, of, of ransomware, could you talk us a bit about how this actually plays out from the organization's point of view? Yeah, so if you break it down, if you think about the anatomy of attack, um, obviously day zero is when somebody clicks on that email um, and and um, a, a system is compromised or a vulnerability is compromised and the hackers fundamentally start to gain access. That's really day zero of the attack. Um, and as I said before, they won't immediately encrypt the service, encrypt the data and ask for ransomware. What happens is the hackers will spend time um, looking on that system, finding critical applications, looking at accounts, trying to get elevated privileges, seeing what lateral movement they can make across the network, um, and then even potentially taking files off the network or, or sensitive data off the network so that they could use that in a, you know, a published attack to, uh, uh, to discredit the organization and to um, you know, um, 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 provide a, you know, a data breach vulnerabilities and prove that they've been on their, their, their sites as well. And typically that process is anywhere between 50 and a couple of hundred days. Uh, in a supply chain attack, it may be even longer. Um, I think that numbers come down slightly. I think in 2017, 2018, it was around 220 days was the average time that the hackers spent on your network. I think it's around about 180 days. The last um, sort of um, uh, uh, research that I saw. Um, and during that time, they're really just, if you like planning the attack, you use a analogy of uh, the old heist movies casing the joint mm -hmm. um, and uh, really planning um, what capabilities they can do to, to launch the attack. And then prior to um, launching the attack and, and actually encrypting the data and, and sending the ransomware note, what they'll then do is break the backups, erase any supporting infrastructure like snapshots, maybe even delete volumes, and uh, delete the underlying data to um, uh, stop you from um, getting that data back. I, I actually saw one attack, which actually wasn't a ransomware attack. This was in a previous um, role in a, in a, uh, in a previous um, um, job that I had where the attack was a life sciences organization. Um, you know, they do obviously um, things like animal experimentation and, and uh, research. Uh, and in that particular attack, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a ransomware, it was a disruption because of uh, uh, animal, animal rights activists. So it wasn't even a ransomware in that note. It was deletion of data, deletion of services. Um, and it's that point of under, breaking the underlying infrastructure um, so that you can't restore from it um, or your inability to restore from that ransomware attack is, is typically the point at what, what point the uh, ransomware is, is then infected and then the, obviously the ransom is, 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 is requested. And at that point, you kind of go to that sliding doors moment do I pay the ransomware and, and, and um, negotiate with the ransomware hackers, or do I go to my traditional systems and try and restore from this event and, and avoid paying the, the ransom, uh, the, the, the ransom, which typically takes a huge amount of time uh, and process to be able to go through the, the tr traditional recovery um, process as well. So a lot of the focus on defending against ransomware is about preventing cyber criminals from gaining access to an organization's system in the first place. So mitigating, uh, well, supply chain, due diligence, and phishing protection. Of course, those things are very important, but fundamentally, how and why should organizations be thinking more about uh, 
using data backups as a tool for tackling ransomware. Yeah, I'd first say that you know relying on your backups um, is is really the last line of defence. Um, it shouldn't be the only protection and and the the, the, the you know the, the the safety net that you rely on. So protecting against any ransomware attack is a multi-pronged approach, uh, and and being able to protect at, at different layers and, and different capabilities is absolutely essential because no one single remediation is going to make the difference. You absolutely need um, multiple defenses. So obviously to check against the initial emails and malicious emails, having um, you know email inspection and, and and also end user training to be able to be able to educate users to the the, the, the threats but also uh, um, the, the potential harms and spotting ransomware is absolutely uh, you know the, the first port of uh, of, uh, of defense but then also having you know a, a deployed scene to look at NS uh, you know logs um, monitoring proxies endpoint security detections to to, to check users actions being able to check against account compromises, multi-factor authentication, um, being able to stop privileged um, escalations or privileged access or moving laterally across the networks. There's a whole bunch of technologies that we can deploy to be able to limit that as well um, around network segmentation and role-based access control. And at the very last point of that chain, if all of those other fail-safes have, have been compromised, the ability to be able to use your backups and to be able to restore from prior to the attack, um, or certainly prior to the the encryption event, um, is absolutely critical to give you that, if you like, get out of jail free card. That if everything else has failed and I've got no other option, then at least I can be able to use my backups and be able to restore them in in the in the you know the, the really the last line of the defence. And that's particularly where pure storage focus. So all of those other actions around email inspection, multi-factor authentication, network segmentation, SIEM and monitoring, there's a whole ecosystem that's focused on providing solutions into that space where pure specifically focus is that ability to be able to help you, A, make your backups immutable, and then also be able to ra rapidly restore them in the event that you actually need them and have to be able to do a mass restore. So the, the problem, I guess, with backup data and it being part of your ransomware or, or threat mitigation process is that it's very resource heavy and can take up a lot of space. I mean, t talk a bit about that. Do you think that's an impediment to this approach to ransomware defense? Yeah, well, typically you'd be doing some form of backup traditionally for compliance reasons and, and, and obviously for being able to um, ensure that you can back up your data or restore your data. And that's something that we, we've traditionally done, you know, really since the dawn of certainly housing data in a data center and, and, and putting in a computer uh, online. What's different is that traditionally we haven't typically expected to restore masses amount of data in a very quick manner. And that's really the order of the day of when you've had a ransomware attack you're probably not going to be restoring an individual file, an individual email, an individual database. You might be actually restoring a whole raft of services, uh, multiple servers, multiple um, services, uh, multiple applications. And that's where it really differs to a traditional restore event um, where I may be just restoring something from a month ago for compliance reasons to, to actually bringing up the business back up online because it's been fundamentally affected and, and is down 
based on that ransomware attack, you know, going back to that seven trillion, sorry, six trillion dollars of uh, of impact from ransomware attacks that um, uh, was expected this year. So this is where we have to question whether traditional strategies of backup and recovery are really up to the task of being able to restore. And what we're seeing is customers that think this through are, are changing their approach to protecting their data to be able to restore it quickly. And this really can take two forms. Um, the first form is you protect the data very close to its source. So um, using snapshot point in time recovery capability to A, to be able to take very fast backup, but more importantly, to be able to do fast restore. That's the, absolutely the quickest capability to restore is not to move data around, but just to really to manipulate the metadata. And that's what we can do with our snapshots that are backing the primary storage applications, um, which is uh, you know typically where you obviously where your applications are and how that how that's being serviced. And then the other aspect of this is and it's not mutually exclusive; it's something that you can do to both. But then you can also um, use your traditional backup solutions, so tried and tested um, uh, backup solutions that are very well known within the data center, the process to restore very known with the data center. And you can supplement those with high performance storage that also uses ability to be able to use um, snapshots to be able to protect those data protection services as well. And then again, that also allows us to be able to take short-term backups and short-term restores to be able to accelerate those and um, use them in the event of that I have to actually go to my backup application and restore those in, in high performance needs as well. And it's a combination of those two events, depending on what technologies are being used, that allow customers to approach this in a different way to allow them to um, provide immutability and then also provide them the ability to be able to do very fast restores and fundamentally get the data and the application back up and ultimately the business back up and running. So, so that's... Uh, a an approach to solving the resource-heavy and, and slow nature of, of backups in this particular context. But does it solve the security problem? I mean, can't the attacker simply delete these these volume snapshots just like they would delete any data? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you think about uh, any storage array, um, most storage arrays have, have ability to take snapshots. And of course, you have admin credentials. And, and as I said before, part of the anatomy of the attack is to harvest credentials to look for the admin account to the storage array, the admin account to the backup service, so that I can delete those backups or, uh, or delete those snapshots or even delete the underlying primary volumes uh, before I launch my attack and launch my ransomware um, attack. Um, and of course, there's nothing to stop a user from um, sniffing, um, getting those admin um, credentials and then logging in and, and deleting the arrays. So a rogue admin, somebody that's harvested the admin credentials, they would have the ability to delete, eradicate data and snapshots from the support and infrastructure. And that's exactly why Pure created Safe Mode. Um, Safe Mode is a capability that we developed actually a few years ago now. And it's an ability that removes the capability from even the admin user so even somebody that's got the admin credentials or the admin privilege privileges from going onto the array and either deleting the volumes deleting the snapshots or changing the policies on the retention of those snapshots that becomes a privileged function that can only be done by pure support um, and that uh, that function from pure support has to be authorized so when a user logs in um, and, and, and speaks to pure support because you may want to recoup space on the array. You may want to change your policy on how long you uh, retain snapshots for. 
you can still do those things, but you have to do those things first by being authenticated and authorized with pure support. And then pure support then will authenticate back to you to, to make sure that you're happy that you've enabled this request. And once you've done that two-way authentication and when you've been authorized, uh, then pure support will enact that um, restore operation or that change in policy for you. So it makes this a almost like a, a missile launch system where you need two authorized people to authorize a change, and that's done by a third party. Um, also, once that's been authorized by the uh, by the uh, the the, uh, the administrator at the customer site as well. So it effectively makes for a very uh, robust system that removes that capability from just anybody from having the admin credentials from, from deleting data or or, okay. or or removing data from the array. So that's uh, that addresses the, the issue of deleting data that's already been uh, stored in, in snapshot form. What about during this reconnaissance stage that you described earlier when the attackers are in your system and, and, and checking things out? What's to stop them from just turning that off at that stage? Yeah, it's a privileged function. So once it's turned on, uh, once it's been enabled, um, then no, nobody can turn that off. Nobody with the admin credentials or ele elevated privileges on, on the array um, can turn that um, um, safe mode capability off. So um, the only way to change it um, is to authenticate. Again, double authentication, double knock, so that there's two different people from the organization that's requesting that change. Um, obviously, there's an authorization approach that we authorize and authenticate those users. Um, and then once they've been authenticated and authorized, then pure support can make that change on, on behalf of the uh, of the user by using our uh, remote access to the array. So it's impossible for, for anybody um, that, that's not part of um, pure support to be able to uh, to be able to change that array or to uh, change the configuration of that array and effectively turn off safe mode. Mm, okay, so a lot of layers of security and authentication there. Um, so final question on, on this, this backup process. Just let me play devil's advocate here. Even if you've, you, you, so say your, your initial security controls have failed, you've suffered a ransomware attack, but you've encrypted, you, you've protected your backups and uh, you, you've used safe modes and, and, and snapshots to, to, to restore that. But during the time that you're restoring your backups, your systems are inaccessible. You can't really do business in, in many situations there. That lost time can cost businesses thousands or even millions of dollars in, in some cases. Doesn't that make relying on backups less practical? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in order to be able to recover from a cyber event or you know, cyber recovery event, you absolutely need two attributes to protect your data. First of all, you need that immutability. So the ability to ensure that that data is there and a copy of that data is available to, re to, to restore from. And that's what our safe mode snapshots provides. It provides an ability either for the primary data to have a copy, a logical copy of that data to be available or a copy of the backup environment where I've run my backup to and my backups are, um, are protected um, using that same technology. Um, and you also then need the speed of restore because it's all very well having a an immutable copy, but if it's going to take me hours and days and weeks to restore that data, then it's no good, right? I can put data into an offsite vault and put it into a tape drive, um, store it in the cloud. It'll be immutable in the cloud, 
But if it's going to take me weeks to pull that data back and to do effectively to do a restore, then you know I'm I'm, I'm back to square one of, of 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 being out of business for for weeks or being offline for for days or weeks. So the other aspect to this is is speed and the ability not only to have that immutable locked capability, but then also to be able to restore it quickly. And that really comes in three forms. If you if your data is if your primary copy of the data is backed by a snapshot. That restore process is instantaneous. It's metadata. You're just you're you're not moving data from one device to another. You're just replaying pointers. So it's absolutely instantaneous, and that's great if your primary data is stored on a flash array and it's being protected, a pure um, storage flash flash array, because uh, that gives us that instant recovery and that immutability. But if it's behind a backup application, again, the backup applications allow us to be able to provide streaming restores. So the ability to stream a restore instantly from the backup. It's usually called instant restore technologies. Most of the, the backup vendors allow this. Uh, and to do that en masse and to have multiple VMs that are booted up and started and streamed from the backup restore, uh, backup capability needs a, a low latency storage device. And, and that's precisely what we provide. But then if you're doing a conventional restore and actually moving blocks of data back rather than the streaming process, then that's where sequ sequential performance comes into play. And again, our devices are designed to be extremely low latency for random I.O. for streaming backups, but extremely high performance, sequential performance that are used for a conventional restore. And the real cool thing is, is that we can introduce this to existing data protection solutions. So you don't have to put in a separate data protection platform for this or change your data protection platform. If you're using Veeam, Veritas, Commvault, um, Cohesity, um, IBM Spectrum Protect, all of these can use um, pure storage capability to be able to provide a rapid restore tier so that any restores that are coming from 14 days, 30 days, again, it's sizing dependent, um, you can be able to provide those for an immutability tier and then also a rapid um, rapid restore um, tier as well. Okay, Rich, well, you've successfully laid all of my concerns about this prospect of focusing more on the backup stage of a, a ransomware mitigation. Um, for, for listeners who might be interested in, in talking more about Pure Storage's solution, what, what's the first step for, for implementing it? Well, if your data is already sitting on a pure storage solution or you have a pure storage solution in your data center, it's really simple. You can just turn this on. Um, there's no license costs. Um, pure have no license features. As long as your array is um, on that level of code that supports safe mode, um, then um, effectively you can turn this on. And the way you do that is just put a call into support or speak to your local account team or, or partner account team, and they will be able to... Um, uh, uh, discuss with you um, the process and the procedure for enabling that feature and uh, and, and turning 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 it on, and and that's partly firmware. You know, I'm just setting the the, the 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 appropriate settings within the firmware of the, the of the array, and then the other half of that is procedural of um, who can call, who can make a change, um, and that authorization process that we spoke um, spoke about earlier. Um, so that's a very simple thing. We can turn this on usually within an hour. An hour if you're uh, if you're already a pure existing customer. Again, as I said before, you can integrate this into your existing data protection solution. So um, again, there's whys and wherefores of the different solutions. But if you're a Veeam, Commvault, Veritas, Spectrum Protect, KST um, customer, um, 
speak to us because we can tell you how we can integrate this into your existing um, uh, data protection solution. Uh, and if you're not running on Pure today, or if you don't have Pure in your data center, then please feel free to, to reach out to purestorage.com forward slash ransomware, uh, and you'll find a whole bunch of solution briefs and white papers um, on how this capability works in a bit more detail as well. Okay, Rich Fenton from Pure Storage, thanks so much for your time. Really interesting talk. Thanks, Rob.